Welcome to the Flourish with Neural Retraining podcast. I'm your host, Madeline Lowry, founder of Twin Cities Neural Retraining and a certified MAP method practitioner specializing in anxiety and chronic health conditions. In episode 61, I'm going to describe the personality traits that predispose to chronic illness. These include being a people pleaser, a caretaker, overachiever, conflict avoider, perfectionist, overly responsible, and other self-sacrificing and emotionally repressive tendencies. I will talk about my own understanding of how habitual emotional, mental, and behavioral responses, which is essentially what personality traits are, as well as the work of others who have published on this topic, including Dr. Gabor Matei, Lydia Temoshuk, PhD, Lawrence Lachan, Dr. John Sarno, and Gary Flint, PhD. In the course of this episode, I will endeavor to answer some commonly asked questions about the connection between personality and lifetime risk of developing chronic illness. We'll discuss the personality and how it is formed, how repressive personality traits create stress and predispose to illness, how working with the mind can change this, and how the MAP method can be helpful. As always, we must disclaim that the information we share in the podcast is for educational purposes only. As MAP method practitioners, we do not diagnose or treat disease. Instead, we work with the person and the personality to optimize health. Are you ready? Let's get started. So let's start with the question, How can the personality influence the risk of developing chronic illness? The first study I like to talk about in addressing a question like this is the ACEs study from the 1990s. This was a large study done by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, and Kaiser Permanente, which is a large healthcare system in California. They enrolled 17,000 adults into this study and had them answer a series of 10 questions, so very short assessment, 10 questions about the kinds of trauma a person might experience before the age of 18. Things like, were you ever separated from a parent for any reason, you know, like divorce or death or jail time? Um, were you ever witness to physical or emotional abuse? Were you ever the recipient of physical or emotional abuse? Questions like that. So 10 questions. And you got one point for every yes answer. What they found was that for people that said yes to four or more of these questions, experiences that they had before the age of 18, this correlated to a significantly increased risk of chronic health issues throughout their lives. 
This included things like mental illness, addictions, chronic health issues, early death from any cause. And so this this study, though it was simple, started to really focus attention on the impact of early life trauma. Now, what was missing from this you know, survey was that it didn't track all kinds of trauma. Remember, there were just 10 questions. They couldn't cover the entirety of what a person might experience before the age of 18. And there was no measure of severity or duration, right? So a person might say yes to a given question, but in their case, you know, that, that factor was a daily reality for them for their whole childhood, you know, whereas someone else, it's something that happened once. So there's no distinction, you know, um, in terms of severity. And so this, you know, this was just um, first cut at the possible impact that trauma has in terms of lifetime risk of developing chronic illness. If you were not familiar with that study, it's easy to Google. The ACEs study stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Also, I want to mention the work of Lydia Temoshuk and Henry Dreyer in the book that they authored called The Type C Connection. Lydia Temoshuk is a psychiatrist who spent years interviewing cancer patients to uncover the emotional coping styles of those that develop cancer. And she also teased out the emotional factors that were more consistent with the ability to overcome the cancer and achieve a recovery and those who were rigidly stuck in certain emotional patterns that made recovery a remote possibility. In her book, she talks about what she called the type C personality. The person who is passive, self-sacrificing, appeasing, unassertive, compliant, patient to a fault, that doesn't express negative emotions, and in some cases doesn't even register them, And they also don't express their needs very well. So she compared and contrasted this type C personality to what had already been described in the literature as the type A personality. You know, this may be a personality type that you are familiar with, right? The type A personality is generally considered to be more competitive, hard-driving, impatient, anxious, self-centered, very focused on their own needs, and in some cases, more aggressive, more hostile. And so when you compare and contrast the type A personality, which is resides at one end of a continuum, and the type C personality, which we could describe as being at the other end of that continuum, the type A personality is almost like a, a coping style that is more aggressive, more of an acting out kind of style. 
And the type C personality is the more self-sacrificing style where we act in. We take our feelings and we internalize them, in some cases to such an extent that we don't even feel them anymore. And in the middle of these two, so the type A personality is more prone to heart disease. The type C personality, more prone to cancer and other types of serious illness. I would include in that autoimmune diseases or ALS. And in between the two, we have the type B personality, which is described as the balanced personality, more relaxed, flexible, non-competitive, self-assured, and generally at peace with themselves and their environment. I've just described to you two studies, one about trauma and its connection to chronic illness or the risk of developing chronic illness, and I've described the type A, B, and C personality types. You may be wondering, what is the connection between these two? And we will get to that in just a moment. But first, I want to talk about how personality traits are formed. So the way I see personality traits are that they are the habitual, emotional, mental, and behavioral responses. Lydia Temeshuk would describe them as emotional coping styles. And as such, they are not innate. They can be changed. Lydia Temeshuk came to the same conclusion. She didn't like the term personality trait, though this is how it's commonly referred to, because she felt that by calling it a trait, it implied that it was something that couldn't be changed. It just was who you are. But I don't see them that way. And neither did she, after all the years of work that she did. Dr. Flint described the personality as a set of behaviors that are based on past experience. Dr. Gary Flint was the originator of what is now known as the MAP method. He was an experimental psychologist. His focus was behaviors and the contribution of memories to forming behaviors. He called these learning structures. And so he understood that all behaviors are based on experience. Think of how a baby first learns to eat. When you give a young child or baby a spoon, they make a lot of errors, right? It takes some repeated experience with the spoon to get to the point where they can get the food into their mouth each and every time. So Dr. Flint saw this as an example of how structures of memories are called upon in a given situation. Someone's handing you a spoon and a bowl and there's food and you're hungry, right? So the, the child is calling upon those memories, those experiences to inform their behavior in this moment. And with more experience, more trials, they get better and better. 
until they are able to bring that spoon to their mouth easily every time. Over time, these behaviors become subconscious. The conscious competence that we develop through repeated trials and the memories that are formed from that then become an unconscious or subconscious competence. And similarly, repression or these repressive emotional coping styles that we were just talking about are also conditioned emotional and mental patterns. Now, why would a human being learn to repress their emotions and their needs? Why would a person learn to be compulsively self-sacrificing and appeasing when it is clearly not in our best interests? Well, the answer to that is in trauma. And in particular, the traumas that we experienced very young. Because, of course, when we are young, you know, we are creating, we are developing our emotional coping styles, right? We are learning about what the world expects from us, how we need to be or perform in order to be acceptable, in order to be loved, nurtured, in order to fit into our family. In his book, When the Body Says No, Dr. Gabor Matei talks about the two primary human needs. The first is the need for authenticity. It's the need to be ourselves. The second is the need for attachment. The need to be loved, validated, approved of, nurtured, cared for. When we have early childhood experiences, painful, emotional experiences, what we call trauma, this can cause a person to give up on authenticity in favor of attachment or belonging. It's almost like a decision is made in the mind of, oh no, it's not important how I feel. What's more important is knowing how they feel, figuring out how they feel, and meeting their needs. Because when their needs are met, then maybe there'll be peace in the household. Maybe there'll be less chaos. And then maybe things can be safe again. So these are the kinds of things that lead to the development of an emotionally, an emotional coping strategy that requires that we repress or suppress our own feelings, our own desires, our own needs in the service of others, which is exactly what we are talking about when we talk about, you know, the kinds of personality traits mentioned at the beginning of this episode. The people pleaser, the conflict avoider, the peacemaker, the caretaker, the nurturer, the overachiever, the person who can't say no, the person who has to control everything. 
I'm not saying that people pleasing is bad. I'm saying that when it becomes a compulsion, when you can't say no, and you give beyond your means, then in some way, you are forcing your body to say no for you. That's the title of Dr. Gabor Matei's book. Because he felt that when we deny ourselves habitually, the body almost acts out in protest. Now, how do we get from repression, emotional repression, to chronic illness? Emotional repression is not the cause. I want to be very clear about that because not everyone with repressive coping styles will develop a chronic illness. It is, however, a risk factor. Why? Because stuffing our emotions, our negative emotions, falling out of touch with the way that we feel, and habitually denying our own needs or ignoring our needs is a stress. It is a very stressful way to live. And when the body is stuck in a stress response, it is not attending to the restorative functions, body functions, that we need to thrive. Therefore, we are degrading our health. And we are just much more susceptible to that next large stressor taking us down weakening us, that next infection, that next injury. Repressive emotional coping styles make us more vulnerable to chronic illness. The stress response is also known as the fight, flight, or freeze response. And many of my clients come to me and they know, they can feel in their bodies that they are too easily triggered into fight, flight, or freeze. For some of them, they have been told by their practitioners, often it's a functional medicine practitioner or a naturopath or some other kind of holistic practitioner that tells them, you know, you, you have signs of being in a sympathetic dominant state. I had a client who had a continuous glucose monitor, which her functional medicine practitioner suggested for her to be able to observe the impact of dietary changes. Well, what she noted was that the glucose fluctuations weren't happening around her meals. She said it looked fine around meals. But then I would go into work and someone would come up to me and engage me in a conversation and suddenly, that is when my glucose levels spiked. <laughs> and I had to point out to her, I said, you know, that is the stress response. When we're in the stress response, the body is calling for glucose because glucose is the fuel that we need when we need to respond to a, a threat. And so for her, being approached by a coworker someone who needed something from her, that was a stressful event. And she could see it. Now, for the person who has a really low threshold to interactions like that, that is the person who's having 
a few hundred stress responses a day. Contrast that to the average person, Dr. Alyssa Rankin in her book, Mind Over Medicine. She talks about how the average person may have 50 to 100 stress responses a day. That's the average person. Now, for the person with repressive emotional style, coping styles, you know, that may be several hundred stress responses a day. Every time you go into that stress response, you put the brakes on all the functions that are needed to maintain health. What kinds of functions? Everything. You know, we we call this the rest, digest, and heal mode of the autonomic nervous system or the parasympathetic response. Everything from digestion to nutrient uptake to elimination, detoxification, hormonal balance, fluid balance, neurotransmitter production, wound healing, everything that you need to live happens in the rest, digest, and heal mode. And every time you have a stress response, you are effectively turning that off. You're stopping it. Why? Because the nervous system puts the body into that fight, flight, or freeze mode. And that is the mode where the body is gearing up to deal with an emergency. It becomes unimportant in that state to be dealing with digesting your lunch. For the subconscious mind, for our nervous system, we are responding as if we are about to run away from a tiger that has just sprung from the bushes. That is the way we are wired. This is an ancient, hardwired system. We are still running the same program as Paleo Man. It hasn't changed. Our lifestyles have changed. But the way that the nervous system runs the body hasn't changed. So that's very important to understand. So who's more likely to have poor digestion, nutrient deficiencies, poor detoxification, and overgrowth of pathogenic species in their gut? Who's more likely to have poor hormonal balance, poor immune function, poor wound healing, poor fluid balance? It's the person who's going into the stress response all of the time. They don't even notice it anymore. It's become their normal state of being in some way. They've habituated to it. Lydia Temeshuk described research done by a colleague of hers, Gary Schwartz, that shows that repressors, so people with emotionally repressive ways of being, numb themselves. This is, of course, being done on a subconscious level, right? They don't know this. They numb themselves with higher levels of beta endorphins. How else do we cope with all the bottled up negative emotions that we keep stored under the surface? Beta endorphins are like painkillers, but they have the unwanted side effect of depressing the immune system, which also helps to explain why people who have repressed emotions and higher levels of beta endorphins have a high pain tolerance, but are also more susceptible to infections and more likely to develop precancerous or cancerous cells. 
this relationship is interesting to understand because it also suggests that as we start to unwind these repressive emotional patterns, that there may be temporary increases in our perception of pain, of body aches. Remember, the same part of the brain that processes emotional pain also processes physical pain. Also, thinking about how we get from having an emotionally repressive personality trait to a diagnosis of chronic illness. Often what I see is that the onset of the symptoms is often preceded by a stressful event. That stress could be an infection, could be a course of antibiotics, it could be something physical, an accident, an injury, a surgery. It could be something emotional. Those are the things we most often think about. It could be a prolonged period of stress. It could be a life change. So often we see that there are stressors in our life in the months to years leading up to a diagnosis. And those are important to be aware of as well. Now, let's talk about how working with the mind can change this. So how can working with the mind get at the underlying personality traits or coping styles? How can working with the mind change habitual behaviors, which in many cases have become compulsions? It's almost like we don't even have a choice. It's just how we are. The first step is awareness. It's understanding how these emotional, mental, and behavioral patterns are costing you. And then, you know, using an advanced method of neural retraining, like the MAP method, you know, we can start to work with the underlying causes, the underlying reasons that these personality traits were developed in the first place. Remember what I said about Dr. Flint's work and his understanding that all behaviors, emotional, mental, and physical behaviors, are formed from memories. His work led to the development of the MAP method, what is now known as the MAP method. He began to work with a subconscious mind. He was trained in all kinds of modalities, EFT, EMDR, NLP, hypnosis, and more. And he incorporated all of these with his own learnings and understandings from working with his patients into a next-generation energy psychology technique that we call the MAP method today. With this method, we can uncover the early memories that led to these coping styles. You don't have to know what the memory was because your subconscious mind has access to all memories. You know, many people come to me and they say, well, I don't have a lot of memories from my childhood. 
Well, first of all, that is a sign that you spend a lot of your childhood in the freeze state. The freeze state is almost like a dissociated state where you, you know, not a lot of memories are written to the hard drive of your mind, you know? So for the conscious mind, there may not be a lot there to look at, but your subconscious mind has a record of all of these memories. And because the map method works directly with the subconscious mind, we can start to get at some of these memories. But it's not just the event, right? It is what your mind made of the event. It's what, what you decided, the beliefs that were planted or reinforced by these events, and the perspectives that you developed that underlie these personality traits or these habits of being. Dr. Joe Dispenza talks about breaking the habit of being yourself. This is what he's talking about, though he has a different approach to it. With the MAP method, we can start to break down the habit, habits of behavior that were formed from early life experiences. With the MAP method, we can work with singular memories, and we can also work with memories that took place over a period of time. You know, so if there were, if there are memories of emotional abuse, for example, that were a, a daily or near daily occurrence over years of your life, that is also something we can work with in a MAP session. Because chances are that these memories are associated to one another in structures. You can almost think of it as like a a, a, a tree or um, a branching structure like a tree. You know, at the root of the tree is, say, the very first experience, the very first time that the belief or the idea or the decision to suppress how we are feeling or what we need in the service of others takes root. And then after that, you know, it's like the branches and the twigs are like all the other memories, all the other experiences in life that reinforced that original belief or decision. When I talk about beliefs here, I'm not talking about religious beliefs. I'm talking about beliefs like the beliefs that we have about ourselves and our worthiness, what we deserve, beliefs that we have about relationships, beliefs about life about the world, about what is possible or not possible for us, beliefs about our health. Those are the kind of beliefs I'm talking about here. A belief is a repetitive thought that has been reinforced so many times that now it is unquestioned. So in a MAP session, we can work with the emotional intensity of the memory. Maybe you do remember an emotional trauma from a young age. We can work with that. Maybe you don't remember the trauma, but you know how it's affecting you today. You know, every time my boss says jump, I say how high, right? And I can't seem to break that pattern. Knowing how it's affecting you in your life today and com you know, coming up with one example of that, that is a memory that we can use. So we can start from the twig of the tree, or we can start from the root of the tree. But 
they're associated in some way. If we start from a twig, we may have to work with multiple twigs, if you see what I'm saying, you know, twigs from different branches, different aspects of your life where the pattern is seen. It is, of course, more effective to work from the root, but both, both approaches will work. And so by working with these types of memories, can also work with the memories that were present, the memories of the stressors that were present prior to the symptoms becoming intensified or the diagnosis being made. We can work with any, any of these types of memories. And through a set of sessions, you know, each session will be focused around, say, one of these memories, or maybe even, if you don't have the memory, the belief that you realize now that you hold about yourself. I'm not good enough. I must be broken or damaged. I'm unworthy. People don't like me. Whatever that belief is, right? We can work with these in sessions. And by doing so, we start to change. First, the emotional responses, then the mental and behavioral patterns. And finally, changes on a physiological level. Even after one session, you may notice that you feel differently the next time a similar trigger arises. You may find that you feel more neutral, at least for a time. The pattern may reestablish itself. That's very normal because we, it just shows we haven't gotten to all of the roots. When you take note of the triggers of the situations that triggered the pattern again, we can work with that again in the next session. So you may feel more neutral. You may be more aware of the pattern. And after a few sessions, you may find it is easier for you to respond differently. That's how you know that it's working. Does this take forever? No, it really doesn't. You know, I usually say, give it three sessions. Usually within three sessions, you have a pretty good idea of yeah, I think I'm noticing shifts. I think I'm noticing changes. It may not be gone. The pattern may not be completely gone. But you may realize that there are benefits from these MAP sessions and that you want to continue to engage with them. Remember that complex patterns are formed over time. There may be multiple events that contributed to the formation of that pattern. It does take a few sessions to break down a pattern for good, but it's very worth doing because now I hope that you understand how this has been costing you. You know, awareness of the pattern and insight into how it's costing you, that's a big first step. And then awareness of the negative emotions themselves, particularly if you re habitually repress emotions like anger or sadness or fear. Understanding that these emotions are critical feedback, that they are meant to be motivation for you to take action, for you to recognize and advocate for yourself to have your needs met. To recognize that anger is not a weapon, shouldn't be used as a weapon, 
it's a tool for you to be in touch with what needs to happen, your authenticity, changing your mindset about your diagnosis, seeing your disease as a turning point, an opportunity to make changes and to prioritize yourself and your health. Now this, this is what disease is about. It's a disruptor for sure, but if used correctly, it could be the path to freedom. I hope that you have found this discussion helpful, and I hope that it encourages you or someone that you love to make the changes that are needed so that you can avoid the diagnosis, so that you can recover from a chronic health condition. Remember, the mind is very powerful. And when we understand its contribution to our health situation, then we can start to invoke it. We can start to utilize it in positive ways to accelerate healing. Well, I hope that you have found this information valuable. If you would like to explore these factors in your own life, you can take the quiz on our website entitled, Could Hidden Stressors in Your Subconscious Be a Factor in Your Health Issues? By taking this assessment, it will help you to see how early life experiences had an impact on certain personality traits you've developed and how this may be connected with chronic symptoms or chronic health issues that you have experienced in your life. Again, I hope this has been helpful. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us for the Flourish with Neural Retraining podcast. Please listen again and remember to follow us and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Play, or Stitcher. Check out our free courses about the MAP method, how it works, and how we use it for mind-body healing at mapforhealth.us or schedule your introductory session at mindremapforhealth.com. Until the next time, be well and flourish. Content of this podcast copyright 2023 by Twin Cities Neural Retraining. Music by Barbara Benn.